0: The fact that um, Bob Foster at uh, whatever, 84, is so incredibly vibrant and uh, alert. And Walt is now uh, pushing 68, somewhere in there, and look at how sharp he is. And I really wondered how they accomplished that. And I thought, you know, it was something about their lifestyle. But when I flew into town in to Colorado Springs, I realized it really has probably more to do with where both of them. Lived for quite a while. Walt doesn't live here anymore, but he lived here a long time because when I was in the airport, I was grabbing a bite, sitting next to this middle-aged couple, and the, uh, they were talking and I kind of was hearing some of it. And the wife mentioned something about the guy's social security. Well, man, he did not look anywhere near old, old enough for social security, so I, I had to interrupt him and, and, and tell him that he was in unbelievable shape for a 65-year-old. He said to me, who's saying anything about 65? I'm 75. I went, whoa, what do you attribute your longevity to me? You look great. He says, well, I eat right, I exercise, and I picked great parents. So tell me, what did your dad die of? Who said anything about dead? He said, my dad's 95, plays golf, regular, travels more than I do. So, well, what did your grandfather die of? He said, who said anything about dead? My grandfather's 115, just got married. I said, 100, why did he want to get married? He said, who said anything about wanting to get married? <laughs> so they they live a long time and stay vibrant here. Oh, I want to talk. We're going to get uh, a lot more into application right now. Uh, because I have found that uh, uh, most businessmen uh, do not connect the dots between what they hear at conferences like this but they hear in church on Sunday and what happens every day in their offices, in their businesses, in their occupations. And that, uh, guys requires a lot of thought because, uh, it's, it's not as easy as it might seem and as it might seem. And there are some problems. I don't want to talk about that and talk about how to accomplish that because God does expect that of us. Uh, really, uh, in truth, we're a lot like uh, Humphrey Bogart in um, that famous movie Casablanca when Peter Laurie asks him, Rick, do you despise me? And Humphrey Bogart says, I guess if I thought about you at all, I'd despise you. And most men are guilty of not thinking about God's word at all at the office or on the job. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We all know exactly what that means in business. It's risk-taking. It's gambling. It's commitment without knowledge. Every time that we uh, invest our time, our money, sometimes our relationships in a service, a product, an idea, a person, we're exercising faith. Uh, we bet that uh, that investment we're making without knowing what the return will be will produce more money than we had when we started and that's an example of faith. We hope to make a profit. Every time you hire somebody, uh, you buy another business or some land or office equipment or stock, uh, develop a business plan, uh, bid for a new client, borrow money or sign a contract, you're exercising faith. We do it every day, day in, day out, uh, in the workplace. And Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it's impossible to please God. The question is, uh, does that faith reflected in our commitment of resources at the office make God happy, satisfy God's (coughs) demand for faith? In other words, does God just like faith as a character trait, that we have a lot of faith? I think that the Bible would answer categorically no. In fact, the, the remainder of that verse, and without faith it's impossible to please God, For he he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's about God. The only kind of faith that pleases God is faith in him. That's the only kind. Everybody exercises faith. It doesn't make a difference. It's faith in him. That's what he's talking about. Not your ability, your wisdom, economic indicators, a plan, nothing else. Biblical faith is reliance upon God's statements. When you act it out, at work, at church, at home, wherever. The great illustration of faith, of course, is Abraham, where it says in Romans four eighteen and, and following, "In hope against hope he believed, in order that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken." See, it was what God liked about it was because he had faith in that which had been spoken. By God. If you you go down there, and I'm not going to read the whole passage, it says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. And farther down, and being fully assured that what he, God, had promised, he was able also to perform. See, everything that Abraham needed, everything that God demanded of Abraham, was obtained by his faith. By believing God. And it changed the way Abraham lived. He left his, his home city, lived in tents, did was willing to sacrifice his son all because he believed God and what God said. Uh, you do not please God in your work unless you're actively relying on his word by applying it in your business. Nothing short of that will make him happy. Biblical faith is is, fa- and faith in the marketplace as we're going to discuss it today is only relates to belief in an action's response to what God has said. How does God's word Apply to what you do every day, when you hire somebody, when you fire somebody, when you make an investment, when you deal with a competitor, in all of those areas. Uh, any before we move on, any questions or comments on that? Okay, how do we shift this business faith that everybody in the United States has to faith in the marketplace that pleases God? And to be honest, the the threshold question, and I believe. Uh, the big issue that most businessmen need to really uh, be honest in evaluating is the question, can I really trust God? Because it's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you money. And he asks us to do things that will not make business sense. And so do you believe him? Why do you trust a bank? Nobody, uh, if I open the first bank of Hank in a a trailer, and hung the shingle, I can promise you, I'm not, even the people that know me, they're not going to give me any money. People look for three things from a bank, and I think they look for the same thing from God. Now, I tell you, down in our part of the country, by the way, a lot of older people don't trust banks. They won't put money in a bank. They bury it in the backyard. They hide it in mattresses. I've had to, I mean, I've had to deal with a number of old people in counsel i on the danger of that. They want to cash their check and walk around town with a lot of money in their pocket because they do not trust the bank. They, and you know what? They just don't know enough about it. But they have to know about the bank's character, about the bank's capacity, and about the bank's commitment. If you don't satisfy all three of those inquiries, you don't put money in the bank. First character. You want to know what's the bank's reputation. Has it gone out of business three times? Did they steal from people? Did the president been to prison? Who's on the board of directors? You check the reputation. Is it a good bank? Or they take high risk, make high risk loans. You know, can you trust their character? The second thing is their capacity. You want to make sure they don't need your checking account to pay the light bill. <laughs> they got a lot of capacity. They have a lot of money. They have a, that's why they build banks with, you know, big brick buildings. They look substantial because it, it tells us we got money. We got money to waste on the structure. Makes us feel secure. They don't need my money. And then commitment. You can have somebody with character and capacity, but if you give them the money and there's no deal, they just go spend it. So they make a commitment. You put money in your checking account. You can write these little pieces of paper and you get it back. They make a commitment. You, come, you put it in, you can take it out. Plus interest in certain if you use certain vehicles. The same thing with God. You need to know something about his character. Is he trustworthy? You know, is he, does he have the capacity? I think being all-powerful, creator of the universe might give him an okay on that one. Uh, but can you really trust him? What's his track record? If you I'll be honest with you, if you don't look into it, uh, whether you say it verbally or admit it consciously, you won't trust him. And has and then you, the key is what commitments has he made? Because any if you put faith in things that he hasn't made a commitment in, it's just presumption. He can save you from jumping off a building, but he hasn't promised to. So you have to have all three of those things. That's exactly what Pharaoh understood when Moses said, let my people go. Now Pharaoh was a big businessman and the nation of Israel was a huge part of Egypt's capital. This free labor force. They just had to feed them and house them and they got all the work for free. I mean, it was a, it was a expensive endeavor. So Moses comes and says, give me all that capital. Let them go. And, and Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? He understood. If you don't know God, if you can't trust him, if you can't answer those three questions, it's stupid to listen to him. And so he did not know God and he did not let him go willingly. Whenever we disobey, it reflects a lack of faith which flows from not knowing God. You leave. show me a guy who left his wife, I'll show you a guy who doesn't know God. That's simple. That's why obedience and faith are used as synonyms in the New Testament. And what Walt said is so important. If you believe the building's on fire, we're all out the door. The guys who stay in here don't believe it's on fire. It always comes out in action. And and Paul asked the same question as Pharaoh with the same result. The issue is you gotta connect who God, who's talking to you, with doing what he says when he got mugged on the road to Damascus by God, he's knocked off the horse and he says, Who art thou, Lord? In Acts 22, when he describes this. And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And then he asked the second question. Now I know who you are. What do you want me to do, Lord? I suggest you it's the same thing for us. Once we know who he is, the only logical question is, What do you want me to do? If you don't know who he is, you don't ask the question. If you know who he is, you'll always ask that question. Every day. So, and and I'll tell you, a lot of guys profess to know Christ. You get hanging around with other Christians. You want to look good. And you can gin up obedience to a point. Or for a time. You cannot sustain it and you cannot do it consistently. That's what happened to so many of the kings of Israel. King Amaziah is a good example. His story in 2 Chronicles 25 tells us that he had a problem with a competitor named Edom. And he was afraid he did not have resources sufficient to compete with his competitor. so he made a strategic alliance with the northern kingdom, Israel. And one of his Christian buddies came across the path and said, you can't do that. That's unequal yoking. God won't honor that. So Amaziah says, well, what, I already paid him in advance. In other words, obeying God is going to cost me some money. What, what about the money, he says? And the prophet says, does not God have much more than this to give to you? Amaziah does it, but if you if you read earlier in the book, it says that he he followed the commands of God, but not with a whole heart. And that gives you the insight. He really didn't know God. So he did at that time. He got a good result, but almost just about 20 verses later, uh, it points out that he no longer followed the Lord. He ended up apostate. He could not sustain it. The same thing is true for us. The same thing is true for us. You can only keep the show up for a while. That is why God gives a revelation of himself with all of his promises and his commands. That's why in John 14, when he's talking to the apostles, and one of them says, Show us the Father. And Jesus says, Have I been with you so long, and you have not come to know me, Philip? How much time you have been spending with Jesus? Because if you do, you'll get to know him. You will get to know him. He says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe in the works themselves. If you just track what he does, it'll tell you a lot. Either one will work, but I suggest both over time are required. And faith in God is based on his character, capacity, and commitment, but it only operates within the boundaries of his will. If you believe something contrary to God's will, it's not biblical faith, it's the opposite. And uh, without a knowledge of God's will, there really can be no biblical faith. And that's why you have to do a little thinking. What, and what we do in our office many, many times, is so we sit down and say, what biblical principles apply to this situation? Just to, what might come into play? And we'll jot a bunch of them down, and, and usually that helps us make the, the right decision. Sometimes the decision is morally neutral, uh, but a lot of times it's not whenever you catch yourself justifying yourself, well, you know, <laughs> good time to, to take a look. Good time to take a look. That's why in prayer you can't ask in faith if you're guessing at the will of God. Prayer of faith is a prayer made in the sure knowledge of God's will. You Sometimes I've started out praying. I wasn't sure. But in that process of wrestling, God revealed to me at least as best I could tell what he really wanted. And then I really start to pray in faith. And I persisted in prayer. If I didn't get that, then I usually didn't keep praying for whatever it was. Because God hasn't said, if you have enough faith, I'll do whatever you want. He says, if you put your faith in me, I'll empower you to do whatever I want. Big, big difference. So well, what does it look like in business? Because most men grab readily the promise of heaven. But they stumble over... Uh, You know, commands like don't seek wealth, don't love money, don't meet your commitments. And we're very much like Israel. You see, in fact, I'm going to tell you that if you know the Lord's Prayer, in many respects, it's easier to say thy kingdom come than Lord give us this day our daily bread. And with Israel, they left Egypt. They believed God was going to give them the promised land. Where did they get into trouble? Water and food same thing for us. I trust Jesus for my salvation. I'm not sure he'll help me with my mortgage. And they went left. And, as, and finally they got to Cage Barnia, and they rebelled. Well, what are you up against? Because faith in the marketplace does require thinking. And most men, I have found, live in the reactive mode. They're very seldom proactive. They're just responding all of the time. Oh, They don't really take the time to search for relevant biblical commands, which requires a lot of effort. Part of the problem for this is the velocity of life. Today, 30 million American men say they are stressed out. 36% say they're rushed all the time. The average office worker in the United States is interrupted 202 times a day. They have 36 hours of work sitting on their desk that they can see all the time and take three hours a week shuffling the piles to find the one that they need to work on next. We spend eight months of our lives opening junk mail and one year looking for misplaced objects. And they've even done a study, and the average misplaced object is 10 inches from where it was supposed to be. <laughs> I spend that long looking for pencils and pens. The average American gets two and a half hours less sleep than he did 100 years ago. In 1850, the average American slept nine and a half hours a night. By 1910, it was nine hours as electricity became prevalent. 1950, it was eight hours. Welcome TV. By 1990, it's seven hours. Migraines are up 60% in the last decade. Only 10% of American workers get 30 minutes or more for lunch. We work an average of 14 weeks more a year than the Norwegians. And we work more hours than any country in the world. And the church, it takes 20 or 30 phone calls to get the same number of volunteers it used to take 15 years ago, uh, two or three calls to get. People are so busy and so stressed out. Eight of ten Christians say they only have time to pray on the run. And we have just been facing more change Probably in the last 10 years and the last 50. Certainly in the last century more than all of history. James Thurber says, "Men, Man is flying too fast for a world that is round. Soon he will catch up with himself in a great rear-end collision. <laughs> you don't have Jesus. But you know, in the Bible, you never see Jesus running. He didn't heal everybody, but he healed the person who was right in front of him. Our tendency is to see the person right in front of us as an obstacle. Because we've got to get somewhere else. We've got to do something else. Big, big difference. Next thing we have to struggle with is our natural inclinations. It's not a pretty picture. Genesis 6.5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So let's say you add bad judgment and no time, and it's no, no surprise that we have a train wreck of morality in business. Uh, there's a great comparison in the Scriptures. The book of Judges the theme of the book of Judges is, is repeated a couple of times, but once at the very end of the book, in verse 21 25 I mean chapter 21 and verse 25, where it says, "In those days, there was no king in Israel. everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Judges is a book of chaos. And that's my office, by the way. It <laughs> seems like total disorganized chaos, and a lot of people's lives are that way. And you know what, run around trying to do what's, what's right? You contrast that with the description of David in 1 Kings 15.5. It says, Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Apparently, there's a conflict between what we think is right and what God thinks is right. And that creates a tension. You know, his ways are not our ways. So you got two People trying to do the right thing but doing two totally different things. One God condemns in the book of Judges, doing right in his own eyes. The other he commends in First Kings because he did what was right in God's eyes. So you got to expect that it's not going to be exactly what you would think it would be. Your instincts, normal business principles, and the counsel of ungodly men will lead to disobedience. That starts with D and that rhymes with T and that stands for trouble that's where we are. In fact, apart from abiding with Jesus Christ and committing ourselves to the Word of God, I suggest to you that your perception of reality becomes distorted. And a good illustration of that is in Jeremiah 44. After Babylon's already wiped out Judah and a bunch of them have kind of rebelled against the governor, they took off for Egypt and they've taken Jeremiah with them and he tells them, don't you get it? This has happened to you because you're sacrificing to the Queen of Heaven and you're worshiping these false gods. And they say, Jeremiah, you don't get it. Things were good when we sacrificed to the Queen of Heaven. So when we stopped doing it, then all this trouble started. See, their whole view of the situation was distorted. You're not having regular quiet times. Your perception is, becomes totally untrustworthy. Any comments or questions? I like that. Just keep going. Part of the problem of this misperception is all of the success principles that we come across in the Word. I mean, not in the Word, but in the world. You know, that you can believe and you can achieve. You're the captain of your destiny. That success is a formula, positive mental attitude, hard work, good technique equals success. And that is baloney. God says, it's not the strength of the horse, comes the victory. No, God says, he decides. No one from the east or the west exalt, or from the desert exalts man. It's God who judges. He raises one up, he puts another down. The game is fixed. The game is fixed. And um, Luke 16, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't believe these principles in God's word and turn around and believe all the, the, the crud that you hear uh, on the radio and that you read in all these books that fill the bookstores on how to do business I'll just suggest to you that if you pursue what the world calls success it will derail your walk with God that's not to say there's not in there some some good advice but it's, in, it's like looking for good advice in dynamite Another problem is something that's already been touched on, so I don't have to spend much time on it, and that's comparison and competition. You're happy with your car till your buddy gets a new one. You're happy with your house till you open better homes and gardens. We're just wired that way. The great illustration of our thinking is in John 21 when Jesus is having that last extended conversation with Peter, and he is telling him about how Peter's gonna die. You know, when you're old, they're gonna Take you and tie your hands and take you where you don't want to go, Peter. It says that Peter, turning, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? How come his business is a success? How come he's getting the great wife? How come, how come, how come? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I would suggest that comparison is an affront to God. We've already talked about stewardship, that He gives each one of us. I mean, we all have different IQs, different family resources. We live in different states with good or bad economies. All these things that God decides. And we know that the Bible says victory is from the Lord, that the results are His. He's sovereign. He's in control. Comparison is illogical. Is illogical. But if you look in the scriptures, you find people like Joseph and Daniel who run countries. And then you look at other people like Jeremiah and Paul, they don't even get to run prison cells. And we look at it, and I'll be honest with you, if I had to pick, I'd I'd rather be Joseph or Daniel. (laughs) And maybe Jeremiah and Paul would. But if Joseph and Daniel did what Jeremiah and Paul did, they would have been in sin. And if Paul or Jeremiah had to tried to do what Joseph and Daniel were called to do, they would have been in sin. Each one should do exactly what God called him to. And God has called each one of us to do different things, and so it's irrelevant to look at anybody else. Remember that God's value system is the reverse of the world's. That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. That's really strong. That's in Luke sixteen fifteen. Highly esteemed among men, detestable in the sight of God. I keep looking in there for some exceptions, but I just can't find any. So we do play or work hard as unto God, but that's different uh, from trying to beat somebody's brains out. I think attitudes, we live in a competitive environment, and so you can't avoid it. But it's your attitude and your approach, I think that is key. But that mitigates against our applying God's word. Another problem we have is American Christianity. My church is bigger than your church. The, the American church has largely embraced a business model, which I think is a huge error. Often we're more into entertainment than encouragement. We go for the experience more than the obedience. And we deal more with felt needs than with self-denial. Now, that's not to say that some of those aspects aren't good, but... I think we have too readily bought in on advertising and entertainment as a way to communicate God's truth and into too much into feelings. We have really, Walt talked about subjectivism. It's all about me. It's not all about me. It's about God. Health wealth is another problem that's prevalent in the church. You know, with God, I can whip the world. If I'm making God happy, everything's going to go my way. What if God uses the world to whip you? into shape. As he says he will do in Hebrews 12, when Jerry talked about it, in verses 4 through 11. He's going to discipline everybody he loves and scourge every son. I just have a hard time fitting that in with health well. In 1 Thessalonians three three, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that you have been destined for these. I keep looking in the New Testament for guys who had Big easy chairs and comfortable lives. And that's not to say God can't give you that, because I have a wonderful home. The issue is our expectations. God's going to decide. He may give you that, and He may not. It's up to Him. There's a book that came out a few years ago called Halftime, Time. Changing your game plan from success to significance. In it, at the very beginning, he, the author says, in the first half of your life, was a quest for success. The second half is a journey to significance. I would suggest to you that neither is a legitimate goal. That's one man's opinion. Uh, well, I think it's a highly dangerous book. It seems to legitimize, legitimize the pursuit of wealth till you hit 50, and then you want to pursue, legitimize the pursuit of significance. Joe Stoll, in his uh, book, writes, the Perilous Pursuits, Our Obsession with Significance. He says, Christ and Christ alone is preeminent, He needs no competition. He is the only truly significant person in the universe. He deserves our commitment to reflect his significance, not our own. I would suggest a better approach might be John John the Baptist in John 3.30. He must increase and I must decrease. And I also suggest to you that if God wants you to share the gospel, he wants you to do it today. He will never affirm putting it off until you get your nest egg set aside and you're totally secure and you don't need, you're totally insulated from the economy and then it's safe to go out and minister. He wants you to do it right now, but that takes faith. It's also interesting to me that in our country where we talk about the fact that we became a great nation because we submitted to God and we acknowledge that He was Lord of all, that we also lift up self reliance. Which is a little inconsistent. <laughs> Who is it? Is it God or us? But uh, and people don't ever connect the dots. But that's a problem now. You know, if you you know if you pray and stuff like that, you're kind of a sissy. You could do it on. You don't need God. You can handle this one by yourself without God's help. What part of John fifteen five don't we understand? Where it says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He abides in me, and I in him. He is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I just can't square that with self-reliance. Doesn't mean we don't work and strive. The key is why we work and strive, for whom and for what. <laughs> because we're called upon to work hardly. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, "And What do you have that you didn't receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast us if you had not? I just can't find self-reliance there. Any questions or comments for... Okay, let's... Compartmentalization and privatization. Two big words. What we do now in our culture, and that makes it hard for us to apply God's word, is we put everything into boxes. And... Um, we don't acknowledge that our lives are an integrated whole. Therefore, what you do at home has no effect on what you do at work, right? At your own private business. You can be totally immoral at home, but a great, loyal, trustworthy employee at the office. Uh, you are who you are wherever you go. And what you do in, in private reflects your character as much as what you do at the office. The Bible says in, 16, in Luke 16:10. He was faithful, in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he was unrighteous, in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Guys, what you do in your private life is who you is who you are, and who you are is where you bring is what you bring everywhere you go. There's no such thing as compartmentalization of your life. You're an integrated whole. And there's nothing in the Bible that supports either boxing God out of any area of your life or out of any relationship you have. Like Winston said, E squared applies in every relationship and in every situation. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, Jesus says, if you deny me, I'm going to deny you. Two is, do you trust him? Do you trust him? So because somewhere along the way we got the idea that God didn't was against us making a profit, and we all know you can't be in business unless you make a profit. You really can't. Therefore, God doesn't know anything about business. Therefore, he has, you know, we box him out. He doesn't understand. He understands perfectly. He put the profit motive in us. He just says, directed towards the eternal, work heartily as unto the Lord. But he knows we need to make a profit. Do we trust him with that so that we'll do business the way the boss man says we ought to do business? So, he is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He's Lord everywhere or he's not Lord anywhere. Privatization is just like compartmentalization. The truth of the matter is I know more about Elizabeth Taylor and Pee Wee Herman than I do about the guy who lives next door. You know, your faith is your business. My faith is my business. I keep it a very private thing. Jesus says you're supposed to go public with it. You're supposed to be interested in the people around you. Ask them questions. How's it going? How do you feel? How's your life? How's your business? How's your wife? Anything troubling you? Can I help you anywhere? Those kinds of questions are typically discouraged by the world, but very much encouraged by Christ. We need to get involved in people's lives and, and be willing to, to be transparent and tell them about our lives. Not all of our problems, but certainly about the things that make us human and the, and the things that we have found in Christ. Somehow, our culture has developed this idea that a fulfilling career is a, is, is a good thing. And I, see, I meet college kids, and I've talked to probably hundreds of men wrestling, agonizing over their career because I'm just not happy where I am. Just, you know... And somehow we got our culture developed this idea that you can get meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction out of your career. If, in which case I need to change jobs. But Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I guess we could have saved them the trip, huh? We can get that from the job, Jesus. We really don't need you for that. That's a lie. That is a lie. In the Bible on careers... I've found two verses that deal with careers. Ecclesiastes nine ten. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. A lot of thought went into that. Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for man? God's comment on careers? Whatever. really doesn't matter. I'm going to burn it all anyway. <laughs> it's spend years wrestling with it, changing jobs. I mean, I, I'm not... You can change jobs all you want, but don't look for something that they can't provide. Ecclesiastes 2, uh, Solomon explores in a very condensed fashion, he goes through it in the whole book, his uh, use of his mind, which is better than ours, his resources, which were much greater than ours, and his authority, which is more than we'll ever have, as he explored pleasure, accomplishments, possessions, wealth, and fame. And he comes to the conclusion that Jerry told us. In verse 11 of chapter 2, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done in the labor which I had exerted. Behold, all was vanity and striving after win. Any questions about careers? Next problem, ignorance. We talked about that a little bit already at this conference too. Ignorance is bliss, guys, but only in the short run. Only in the short run. In fact, they say in an office that you can kill any project or initiative by just not watering it. Just leave it alone and it'll die. And that is true for the application of God's word in your business. I'm going to tell you that often our lack as as Christian businessmen, our lack of thought, let alone the pursuit of the application of our faith in the marketplace, over years would land us in prison if we applied the same effort to complying with federal or state regulations governing our professions. We don't even, I mean, we wrestle, and I'm going to tell you, in our office, we wrestle-mindedly with a, a host of complex regulations and how to apply them to make sure we don't get in trouble. We're very thoughtful, proactive. We put in processes and procedures, all kinds of stuff. We don't, you know, just spend five minutes in thinking about God's regulations and how they apply to business. And truthfully, I think that most men know and they avoid those kinds of thoughts, because they're just afraid they won't get to to the level of lifestyle that they'd like to have. They they just don't trust God. I love this. There's a guy, Jeff McNeely, who was a political cartoonist, uh, who was really good. He's dead now. And he also did a a Sunday comic strip called Shoe, which is about a bunch of birds that ran a newspaper. It's just really clever. And one time you got the old professor who was one of the uh, uh, reporters, talking to his editor, the old Crow, and they're sitting at the bar. Roz is behind the bar, and the the, uh, Crow's smoking a cigarette, and they're drinking beer. And the professor says, you know, he says, we've known each other for 20 years. During that time, he said, we've talked about funny experiences we've had together, sporting events, politics, trivia, insignificant stuff. He says, we have never once talked about the important issues of life. Never talked about our values, our hopes, our dreams, our priorities, our perspective. It's never come up. Cole looks at that and says, You know, I've never thanked you for that. <laughs> the professor says, Don't mention it. That's the way men are. We never we never stop and take time to think about the important stuff. Joshua 1 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do it according to all that's in it. Then you will have success, and then you will have prosperity. In other words, Joshua was telling us, you've got to think about it every day. Meditate, which means turn it over in your mind, if you're going to be careful to do what it says. It takes effort. It takes thought. It takes time. It's important. And it also tells us that real success is the applying is our applying God's word not the accumulation of stuff or recognition or security as the world might define it. See, the opposite of ignorance is not knowledge. It's obedience. The opposite of ignorance is not knowledge. It's obedience. Jesus becomes incarnate in our lives as we obey Him. And the will of God is always found in the Word of God. Like Walt said, You can be led by the Spirit, and you need to be taught by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. But nothing from the Spirit is ever going to be inconsistent with something in God's Word, which the Spirit wrote. There's never going to be a uh, discrepancy. If there is, it ain't God's Spirit that's talking to you. And our application of God's Word at work will be judged. Another problem we have is everything that we hear will be counterintuitive and illogical. And in addition to being countercultural, We're going to look a little bit like Bill Dana. Remember the Jose Jimenez? My name, Jose Jimenez, Or like Andy Kaufman in Taxi, Lotso. Hello, everybody. If, you, if I apply this stuff, I'm going to look stupid. People, it's, you're going to look nonsensical. You're going to look naive. Or you're going to look legalistic. And we don't want to look those ways. We want people to think better of us. But we know that Second Corinthians... Um, says that uh, 1 Corinthians two fourteen rather says that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. So what do we expect? They're not going to understand. The issue is, do you believe them or God? Comments, questions? Good question. Yeah. 14. When you said the uh, opposite of obedience is ignorance. Not knowledge? Well, the, the opposite of ignorance is obedience. Yeah, okay, I got it backwards. But, but still, expand on it a little bit. Okay, I Do think. You have to go to knowledge first? Um, you have to be exposed to God's word. But Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So as you obey, you get insight, you get disclosure. It's a process. So I'm not saying you don't. You have to know a little bit, but you don't have to know much. Never forget that Rahab the whore, all she knew was a 40-year-old rumor and she was willing to be a traitor to her country. Any other comments, questions? Okay, how to turn it around. First and foremost, you're going to have to get serious about pursuing God and His Word. You only trust who you know. You've got to get to know, or as James Carville might put it, it's your relationship with Jesus, stupid. Yeah, I mean, You won't either. We know that boy down our way, and you won't hear him say that unless some cataclysmic happens. John seventeen three says, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's an incredible statement. We can know God. Not about God. We can actually know His ways. And that is the big benefit of eternal life. Now, if it doesn't seem like a big benefit, it's because you haven't gotten to know God. So you need to get at it. Like David, you need to be like David. It says, 1 Samuel 13, 14, And the Lord sought out for Himself a man after his own heart, and, that's, I forget, and it's reiterated in Acts 13:22 that David was a man after God's own heart. And I thought about that, and sometimes I, say, I want to have a heart like David. But it's, it, we tend to kind of think of that like he had some kind of an implant. He had an unusual heart that would look like God's heart or something. And that word really means it's the hind part. It's, some, it's the behind of an animal. It's that it's on him. I'd sit down our way we see he's like white on. He was on God like white on rice, like ugly on the ape like a cheap suit on your back. He was all over God, pursuing him. In, the, in that movie, The Hoosiers, remember he tells that kid, if you've ever seen that, at the end, they're playing the big game, he tells the kid, I want you to be able to tell me what flavor gum he's chewing. And the kid goes in the game, and he gets, finally fouls out, and the coach looks at him and goes, he goes, uh, experiment. <laughs> that's how, that's, that's what that David did. That's what it means when it says follow Jesus. We're on Him. We're tracking behind Him. Seeing what He does. Imitating Him. We imitate His ways, His priorities, His value, His way of thinking, His perspective. It's the same idea. Pursuing is an active, intense verb. You're right on Him like like my behind is on my back. You're there. You're watching God, looking for Him everywhere. Because you trust who you know. One of the things that makes it hard to trust God is He just doesn't see things the way we do. We've got to go back to that our thinking is wrong. He's counterintuitive. And that disparity between what, the way He looks at stuff and the way we look at stuff makes it really hard to trust Him. That's why we have to work at it. We have to you know, renew our mind. We spend enough time with Him. We change the way we view the world. Our truth system changes. When our truth system changes, our values and our convictions change. Our hope changes then our activities change. We need to grasp His point of view to trust Him. To increasingly know His mind. It's a process. You never get there. He's, he's, he's infinite. We're finite. He's given us imperfect revelation. We can't handle it. We can't, you know, it's like getting on the ride in Disney World. If, you, if you're not this tall, you can't get on. If you got a weak heart, you can't get on. God says, your heart's too weak. You're too short. You can't handle me. I'm just going to give you a little bit. I'll let you ride on the kitty. The kitty ride. That's all you get to see. But whatever he lets you see, go after it. It's enough. It's enough. If you don't, won't pursue him with all your heart, soul, and strength, you won't find him. If you don't know him, you won't trust him. If you don't trust him, you won't obey him anywhere, let alone the workplace. Because the only thing over the long haul that will sustain you is your relationship with Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus. Uh, in Judges... That book of chaos I talked about earlier, uh, in chapter two, it, sa- it makes some really telling statements, because it says a generation arose who did not know God, nor His works. So they didn't know who He was or what He did. And then, and it has this big word says then. They didn't know God. They didn't know what He did. Then this happened, and it's from. Chapter 2.10, it describes this. And it, it's a cycle. It says they did evil. Then they forsook the Lord. Then they followed the gods and the, other, and the ways of the other people. And then they provoked God to anger. And then it entered into this cycle of God getting angry with them, putting them under distress, raising up a judge, delivering them. They follow them for a short while and then they go right, says they go right back to what they were doing before. And there's several conclusions you can draw from that. One, it affirms that the only knowledge of God keeps you from sin. Logic, uh, uh, temporal consequences, you've got to really know who God is, and that will keep you from sinning more than anything else. Either God will influence your life, or those around you will influence your life. Somebody will influence you. It's either me God or the people around you, because you will follow someone. If you don't know God and you head down this road, guys... Just like Israel, make no mistake, even dramatic events in your life will not turn you around. horrifying I know guys who have made bad choices and they have horrifying circumstances and consequences. And they don't get it. Because the problem, nothing will help them unless they turn and get to know God. And they will follow the people. Who are you imitating? Jack Welch or Jesus? Because you're following somebody. Business books or the book? Ahaz was the king in Israel in 2 Kings 16. It said he went to Assyria, which was, they were the big business that really had it got right. I mean, they were a successful nation. Israel's struggling over there. I mean, Judah was struggling. So he goes up and he sees this, and and what he does, he comes back and he brings, he says that he brought their practices back to Judah. And then he adopted their belief systems. So when we go to the world, that's what's going to happen to us. And it said uh, later in Second Kings 17, it says that they were taken captive in part because they walked in the customs of the nations. What makes us think that we're exempt from that? That we're exempt from that? Let's see. We've got a few more minutes. Any comments or questions? Okay, we'll cover a couple more points and then quit. Next, I suggest to you that you should take it one truth at a time. We are talking about how much everyone has gotten here this weekend. You cannot do everything all at once. <laughs> I suggest you use, you use the method Jesus used. What is the issue that's right in front of you? Apply it one truth at a time. What, what's right? Deal with what's right in front of you. Don't try to change everything. How does God's Word apply to whatever uh, critical issues or decisions you're trying to make right now in your business? Or whatever God might bring to mind in your heart through this conversation. I tell you if you ask His Spirit, there's something that'll come up. And just deal with that. Don't forget the rest, but you can only do stuff one at a time. Forget all that multitasking when it comes to God's word. That's not a that's not a prescription for success. You need to think about it, pray about it, look at your life, figure out what changes you need to make in the way you're approaching your problems in your life. Get some buddies to help you process some of it, because they'll have because they're not playing poker with your chips, they'll be a little bit more objective. And keep going back to review it. Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is, the mature, is for the mature, who because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. takes practice. Those two words, practice, we all know what that means when you're in sports. Repetitive, going over it and over it. A behavioral scientists tell us that if you move a light switch, It'll take a person 30 times reaching the wrong spot before they'll finally start to reach the right spot. So we need to do the same thing with God's words. We're not going to do it perfectly. You've got to keep working at it. Practice it. It takes effort. Just like training, you're going to sweat. It's going to be resistance. It's going to be hard. But eventually it becomes natural to you. And then all you need to do is periodically go back and review it. You don't need to spend all the, do all the tackling drills you did during the season. Once the season's going on, they just do a few, just to kind of remind you, make sure you keep... And we do the same thing, because growth is never automatic, and change does take effort. And so we've got to remember that as we try to apply it. A good truth to apply right off the bat is to wrestle with this issue of God's sovereignty. Is He really involved in managing the intimate circumstances of your life as He claims to be? Are there really no accidents, as the Bible indicates that rain and weather come from God, traffic delays, people trying to hurt you, they can't do it without God's... You know He's uh, in charge of everything that comes in your life. Only two people can hurt you, you and God, and you don't have to worry about Him. Get your arms around that. You want to be like Joseph who could say at Genesis 50, verse 20, And as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. To preserve many people alive. Yeah, they tried to hurt him. They were God's problem. Because by the time they dropped Joseph in that pit, it was God doing it to him. He understood that. The issue was between he and God. God would take care of his brothers. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes, not responds to, but causes all things to work together for good. For those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's pretty clear. If you get your arms around it, guys, I suggest that you'll You'll lose your fear. You'll stop worrying. You'll be, develop a heart full of gratitude. You'll be able to forgive other people and you won't be angry when things happen that don't feel so good. That's a good principle to start with and to really rest with. In the scriptures, every discussion about what happens to a man of scriptures is between that guy and God. That guy and God. You're going to need to move your hope to the eternal and that... Um, uh, we will probably finish on this. But in order to trust God, because we have a profit motive, we need to understand that He says, I will make it worth you while. Or Carly of the Lord. And what does He say farther down? Because knowing it's the Lord God who you serve and who is who will reward you for the inheritance. God says, I'll make it worth you while. And uh, we do not have time to deal with this topic. Uh, but Peter advises in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, gird your minds for action, talking about daily living, keep sober in spirit for your life, fixing your hope completely on the grace to be brought, at the, brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, really, You really need to fix your hope on heaven. Because this life may not turn out like you want it to. Circumstances may not be the way you want it to be. But you can take to the bank what God promises us in heaven. And most guys have no idea what heaven is going to be like. And they never think about it. They don't look at what the scriptures say. And as a result, if they're really honest with themselves, they believe that what the world has to offer is probably better than what God has to offer in heaven. And if you believe that, then you don't trust God and you will not, you pay the price to obey Him. You need to understand that we cannot imagine how good heaven it is. When God says pleasure is at His right hand forever, He means what He says and that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy of comparison, it must be pretty darn good. Better than a home by the lake. Better than sex with little Susie. Better than a big bank account. Better than traveling around the world. He's got something better than... A lot better. Not even You wouldn't even want to do that if you knew. If you knew what you're going to do. And, and, and there's a lot more about it. I don't have time, but I commend you to really... Look, heaven is not boring... Uh, it's an exciting place a place that we're gonna really like if you don't believe but if you don't believe that this world looks pretty good you will not make the trade that Moses made who gave up the pleasures the, the passing pleasures of Egypt for a city built by God you won't do it because it won't it won't be worth it to you the issue is do you believe God do you know him do you trust him if so when he says it's better you'll take it to the bank and you'll act on it And uh, there is a tension between hopes because we do naturally have a hope in this life. And it even says that um, Abraham in hope against hope believed. In other words, I I like an easy chair in a warm house. It's cool in the summer and and warm in the winter. And so uh, we need to realize that what God calls us to do is to sacrifice that temporal hope. That is very natural to us. To deny ourselves and to take up His cross and follow Him daily. We are out of time. And so we will quit here. It has been a, a wonderful time to be with you guys. And a really, uh, I really cannot tell you how uh, blessed you are to live in an area where you have views like this. I look out my window and the, the land goes down. And there's mosquitoes down there. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that uh, you give us a guidepost. That you tell us what you expect us. So we don't have to guess. I pray, God, that we would take you at your word. We get to know you. We trust you, Lord. And then we would seek fervently, day by day, to apply what you have to say in the office and in the, on the job, Lord. And that it would please you, in Christ's name, Amen.